3: Odell Beckham gets traded to the Browns. The Giants sign Golden Tate, and Rob Gronkowski plans to retire. We're talking all that and more on Roto Viz Radio. What's up, Roto Viz? Hi everyone, I'm Dave Cabin, senior fantasy analyst at Rotoviz. This is Rotoviz Radio brought to you by the FFPC. I'm joined by Matthew Friedman, the editor-in-chief of Fantasy Labs, part of the action. Network. Tonight we'll get Matt's thoughts on some of the major moves in free agency and then we're going to take a pretty in-depth look at some running back measurables. I had to take last week off so it's been too long since we've spoken. Matt, what's been your main focus personally over the last two weeks? The upcoming NFL draft, the AAF, the NCAA tournament, uh, maybe some other random prop bets you have going on somewhere in the world? (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, Amazingly, uh, March Madness. And uh, I'm saying this as like someone who doesn't really follow college basketball, um, but is like super interested in prop bets and player prop bets. Uh, And so a number of sites released uh, player props for uh, the NCAA tournament. Um, so I, you know, kind of obsessively started trying to, uh, to analyze them. Uh, and I've, I've done, <laughs> I've done well, which, uh, honestly, I'm kind of surprised. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so the, the better I've, I've done the, uh, more into it I've kind of gotten. So at first it just started as like, okay, I'm going to look at, um, just, you know, like guys records, uh, like how they've done, uh, in wins or losses or, you know, like kind of projecting playing time and thinking like, okay, well, uh, you know, a guy's for the season averaging only 30 minutes per game, but in the postseason, uh, in his three conference tournament games, he was playing 35 minutes per game. And I think this line is too low given his, you know, new projected playing time. Uh, and so just kind of looking at things like that. Uh, and then, so like, uh, and then it got to the point where I'm basically now like creating projections (laughs) for for like all of the players and i've never created basketball projections before so it's kind of fun to to do that um and i'm like my record for the tournament, uh, and player props is, uh, 42, 27 and one. So like, it's like, I'm, I'm doing, I'm I'm doing pretty well with it. And it's like, it's, it is fun to, uh, to go through the process of actually like projecting these guys. Uh, so honestly, that's kind of been the thing that has uh, occupied most of my time. And I've been writing, um, you know, like pieces, basically like prop pieces for every game. Uh, and I'm going to be doing that, uh, moving forward. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's something that's going on.
3: So what you're telling us is that you may eventually be making the change from a NFL-centric fantasy analyst to a college basketball guru. Uh,
1: absolutely not. I <laughs> would think of myself as a March Madness specialist. Oh, I like that. I like yeah. that. I mean, the thing is, like, it, it really is pretty exploitable in a way that, and like, I wrote a piece on this beforehand, that my strategy was going to be focusing primarily on overs Um, which is kind of uh, counterintuitive. Like the sharp side is often the unders. Um, But for uh, the postseason, you have playing time narrowed down to a core group of players. So whereas starters were maybe getting 28 to 31 minutes per game in the regular season in the tournament, a lot of them are getting, you know, 35 to 37 minutes of playing time. Uh, and my, my thought was that a lot of the books wouldn't be adjusting for that. And, uh, I think I was right, uh, in a lot of that. And then it's just kind of building from there. So it, I think like March Madness might actually be more exploitable in a way that, uh, you kind of wouldn't imagine. So I might have a, a weird edge. In March Madness, because I could just sort of intuit what teams might do mm. with their playing time, and that edge would not exist at all during the regular season.
3: Well, that that makes a lot of sense, and the um amounts of time that there is between games is pretty condensed. So I imagine that they're maybe not getting out lines that, especially on player props, that are as nuanced uh, or as specific, yeah, um, as you might have normally.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, during the regular season, they're not really even putting out player props. Uh, for these teams, anyway, it's just a March Madness thing because there are so many more people betting on March Madness. So uh, yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting thing, but it's it's been fun to uh, you know to like dabble in it.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, well, anyway, we should probably make our way into the football talk because that is why the listeners are here. However, though, I do think all of that betting stuff is fascinating, so I'm sure it does resonate with some of our audience. But if you want more football content, uh, make sure that you take advantage of that 30% listener only discount through the podcast homepage, rotoviz.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoy the show, please, please, please leave us a review, subscribe, or even unsubscribe and subscribe again on whatever platform you listen to us on. And don't be afraid to give us a follow on Twitter. Matt, do you have any actual intel that with the way that the algorithms work, that the unsubscribe and subscribe makes a difference?
1: Uh, it's It's what I've been told by people, I'm assuming, know more than I know. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's the extent of my knowledge.
3: All right. So if you've at any point enjoyed this show, please do us a solid unsubscribe and subscribe again. And with that, let's talk some free agency. So Matt, I was not available last week. Some big things happened. I don't believe that we have talked about the Giants trading Odell Beckham to the Browns. I have to imagine that you have some thoughts on this, especially given their follow-up move, which was replacing him with Golden Tate. Yeah. Uh,
1: I love this for Odell Beckham Jr., and I love it for the Browns. Um, Not a big fan of it for the Giants, although I uh, definitely, I guess I understand it at this point because I think... Uh, because of mistakes they made last year, they are now in more of a rebuilding mode, even though I don't think they're really even fully acknowledging that to themselves. But uh, yeah, for Odo Beckham Jr., I think it's fantastic. Um, we've seen what he was able to do in the first five years of his career with a declining Eli Manning, uh, assuming that he is healthy, which uh, you know isn't ever really a full assumption you can make. But let's say he plays... Just like, you know, 13 and a half, 14 games, something like that. Um, I still think he's going to be targeted pretty heavily. Uh, so assuming that Baker Mayfield doesn't even regress. Let's just say that he he stays steady, and that's not even taking into account the fact that he could improve, and I'm expecting he would improve, um, especially with a new offensive coordinator, uh, in Todd Munkin, uh, who I think is really a a strong uh, aerial game specialist. Assuming that uh, Odell Beckham is just sort of what he has been, and Baker Mayfield is what he has been, we can probably look at you know like 90 receptions, uh, I think 12 to 1300 yards passing. uh, And I think like somewhere around like nine to 10 touchdowns. Um, So that's like a high end wide receiver one type of season. Um, I think this is fantastic for him.
3: Yeah, it it has to be. When you consider how well he was doing in New York with just terrible passes being thrown his way from Eli so you know one of the things that you always had on a knock of OBJ when you're comparing him to the top five wide receivers was it's unlikely that the volume was going to match what you might have for a Hopkins or a Julio Jones and then on top of that the accuracy and the quality of those targets probably wasn't going to be there I'm not sure that we're going to get to the 170 type of target range but I do have to imagine at this point especially in Eli Manning's career the quality of those targets is going to be better and I also think that offense as a whole now there are a number of weapons in Cleveland which feels weird to say but I mean that whole offense is coming together in a way that's has to be I think at the very least an upgrade for Beckham
1: yeah uh and I mean I think we should probably see around 10 and a half targets per game. I mean that might be aggressive, but that's pretty much what he's done and I don't know why he would have fewer targets unless they continue really to funnel targets to Jarvis Landry, but I just kind of I kind of don't even see that happening. But even if Beckham Uh, has fewer targets. Let's say he drops down to nine, nine and a half. Uh, I think he will be more efficient with those targets based on who's throwing him the ball and the system in which he's playing. So I I think we can probably still project him uh, for production that's pretty comparable to what he's done in the past.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's also going to be really interesting because we have that reuniting of Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham who played alongside each other at LSU. And actually, uh, coming out of school, Landry had more of the production. And I think that what this is going to do is put them in another situation now where there's two very different skill sets the defense have to account for. They also have a big athletic tight end in David Njoku, who we're still waiting to see if he can really coalesce into a great uh i guess at this point even good type of end uh good type of tight end i know still people still believe in him obviously they have Nick Chubb in the ground game we'll see what happens with Kareem Hunt when he gets back and with that young quarterback in Baker Mayfield so i think that situation's look up uh is looking up a couple of questions for you before we move off of the browns from a dynasty perspective how big of a boost is this for Baker Mayfield and then the addition of OBJ which player in the Cleveland offense is most impacted by his arrival? Is it Landry? Is it Njoku? Is it somebody else? So
1: I think I had Mayfield already as a a top five uh, dynasty quarterback. And uh, I think that, I mean, he's still there. I don't know how much more I I move him up. I think maybe he's number three now. Um, But I don't know. The idea is like for me, he was already trending in that direction anyway. Um, this is just like a little boost to put him over the top, but I was already really bullish on him. Um, the, it's hard to say who I think is going to be most effective, probably Jarvis Landry. Um, I think we're going to see a really big drop in targets for him, but the thing is he was already, uh, in the second half of the season with Mayfield seeing fewer targets. Um, so I think we're probably going to see something similar to, uh, what he had last year with Mayfield. Um, it's one of those weird things where I don't know if it impacts anyone all that much. I think it's kind of additive to the offense. Like I think the entire offense improves. And, uh, as the pie gets bigger, everyone's, you know, like relative slice is s- sort of the same compared to what it was last year. Like I think Injoku gets his production a little bit differently. Like I think yeah. he will have fewer yards, but I bet he will have more touchdowns to compensate for it.
3: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And then the other thing to piggyback off of that too is, if we do see a higher uh, number of games being won by the Browns, we should start to see their play volume slowly rise up as well uh which gets to the point of there being that bigger pie and the other thing for me at least I don't think I was going to be drafting Jarvis Landry as a wide receiver one or wide receiver two this season I think I was already making a bit of a mental adjustment uh just because there were some question marks in the way that he might get used and I think that those are still there with Beckham arriving or not and just kind of how the team really wanted to use him. Um, I guess if you did want to point to a positive for him, it looks like they're really not that interested in using Duke Johnson. Now, I think that Nick Chubb can be used out of the backfield. Kareem Hunt could, but I think that they can also use Landry in that short game, as we've always seen him, to kind of offset some of what they might lose with Johnson out. So, I mean, I still feel okay about him, but I don't think anybody should have been drafting him in that real high range going into 2019 anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, one more player who I think will actually be really impacted by this is Antonio Callaway. Mm-hmm. Like there were probably people hoping that he would have uh, a second year step forward. Um I don't think we're we're going to see that. Like at this point, I think he's pretty buried on the depth chart.
3: Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean, there's only so much even with steps forward that can get squeezed out of this offense and I don't think that Callaway fits in. Uh let's let's head over to the Giants quickly. Um, Golden Tate, I mean, I actually think that he can produce decently well. Um, I'm expecting him though, to be a wide receiver three from a fantasy perspective. When I'm drafting, I'm not going to take the chance that he's going to be a wide receiver two. granted. It's going to be a little bit easier for him to succeed than it was for Beckham because, Eli doesn't need to be looking 20 plus yards downfield when he's going after Tate. He can get them those short uh, little passes in space and see what Tate can do with them. But I don't think it's going to be a safe assumption to assume that maybe the production we would have seen from him in Detroit is going to carry over to New York. Do you agree?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. And part of it is that his skill set overlaps quite a bit with that of Sterling Shepherds. Right. So there's a question of who's going to be playing outside, who's going to be in the slot. And I, I bet ultimately they end up kind of moving around a lot. Um, But yeah, I think a 1,000, so like, like 1,100 yards and six to seven touchdowns is probably um, like a fair projection, maybe even on the high end for what we would get out of Golden Tate.
3: For sure. And I think that the reality is the touchdown potential for him is very capped. Whereas when he was in Detroit, you know, eight, nine, maybe even 10, you could possibly see. I think getting to that six mark is if I was setting an aggressive uh, over six or seven is probably where it would arrive at. Um, But we have a lot to get through tonight. So let's move off of Off of those signings, Jared Cook, it hasn't happened yet, but he is a natural fit to fill that void in New Orleans. Uh, I wrote a piece on the Saints a couple months back looking at them in free agency, and they're actually in need of help in the passing game. So Cook, to me, has made a lot of sense. The last time they went and got a uh, bigger name, I have that in quotes, If you remember, Kobe Fleener a couple of seasons back, it turned into this huge thing. People bought in. I myself bought in. I ended up having in my top five of tight end rankings. We kind of bought into this idea that Drew Brees is this tight end whisperer and that what you saw out of Jimmy Graham, he could maybe get 85% out of that with another player. We're in a very different situation on that team now. Jared Cook had a great season last year. He was the focal point of the Oakland Raiders offense. Pretty athletic guy, but he's not Jimmy Graham. What's a, a fair expectation of what you think that um, Cook could do if he does indeed go to New Orleans?
1: Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's something that's almost kind of like a, a combination of what he's done recently. Um, you know, I think he will probably have like eighty-ish um, targets around like 600 yards, probably actually, I'd like say like 650. And then let's say like four to six touchdowns. I mean, I think he will fit in to that offense, but um, he's not going to have the target volume uh, that he had in in Oakland for a couple of reasons. One, um, Oakland just, uh, they didn't have any other options really. Uh, so he was literally playing as the number one receiver in uh, Michael Thomas. Uh, is clearly going to be the guy who steals a lot of the targets there. Uh, And that's not even to mention any potential development from Traquan Smith or uh, Alvin Kamara still as a guy who gets a lot of targets out of the backfield. Uh, And then also on top of that, uh, the Saints for the past two seasons have been much more of a run heavy team than they were in the previous decade. Uh, so I think there will just be fewer targets in general to go around uh, in New Orleans. Uh, that said, I still think it's a really good signing for the team uh, and and uh, a, a decent situation for him. Like he, he should be drafted in the top 12 of tight ends this year.
3: Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I don't think there's any uh, going against that. Um, it will be. I do expect though that you will see some people trying to make a case for him as like the first player behind the, the new big three being Travis Kelsey, Zach Ertz and George Kittle. Um, but no. I'm not quite sure that no. you, you don't think don't, so. You don't think people no. will buy into that really? No. I think I, they will. Uh, uh, no, May, maybe, but I think there are
1: enough people who are really into OJ Howard, um, Evan Ingram as someone who could potentially develop now that Odell Beckham Jr. is gone. I think there there will be enough kind of young guys for people not to focus on the old guy playing on his fourth team in five years.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Um, speaking of tight ends, though, so Rob Gronkowski retired, I guess, um, in some semblance, if you will, on Instagram <laughs> yesterday. Uh, we'll see if it actually ends up being the case, as I you know, already Drew Rosenhaus is trying to say, you know, if if the right situation comes up or Brady asks him to come back, then, you know, he's not gonna be done playing football. So for the time being, we're assuming that Gronk is out. So outside of the Patriots trading up, do you think that they have any chance of landing um Fant, Hawkinson or Irv Smith?
1: Yeah, I would say Irv Smith is the guy that they have a real shot and uh I need to update my mock draft, but um I think in every iteration of my mock draft, I've had them taking Smith at number 32. Wow. Um, Hawkinson and Fant, I imagine will be gone. Um, but the thing is, okay. So I think this is a, a strong tight end class, especially with those three guys. Um, I think all of them are worthy of first round picks, but you look at the teams, uh, who need tight ends and and then you, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't always match up where, uh, like, I think Hawkinson has the quality to be a top 10 pick, but I don't know if there's a team that needs a tight end who will take him in the top 10. Like there are other teams that have other needs, you know? Mm-hmm. So I could see Hawkinson slipping down a little bit and fans slipping down. Um, but I still don't see either one of them slipping down to number 32, but I think Smith probably will be there at 32. And, and I think they should take him.
3: Yeah, of of course, who knows uh, what they will do if they're even going to try to go after the tight end. Mark Ingram should be the lead back in Baltimore. I still think he can produce. I'm pretty optimistic about this, especially because, you know, I'm not going to say that he's, you know, 100% a lock for RB1 status, but I think it's always exciting when we have a player that we can really project into a starting role um, in any offense in the league.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm a little bit worried, um, but I, I do think he's going to be the guy uh, who gets a lot of the touches, uh, at least at the beginning of the season. What makes me worried is that um, part of his value uh, is as a pass catcher, like he is an underrated pass catcher, and he's not going to get those opportunities with the Ravens, or at least I don't expect him to just because, uh, Lamar Miller hasn't shown the willingness to pass the ball to his running backs. Well, that's because, because he's a, he's that,
3: just, that's he's a yeah. running back. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's just, uh, you know, he's just well, taking you said Lamar and, Miller, and not Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. Correct. You know, it's Lamar. funny.
3: It's funny. I actually heard a uh, friend of the show, your podcast nemesis make that same Freudian slip, if you will. Well, so I don't uh, know what that says. Demented minds think alike. Okay. Um so yeah, it's it's a situation
1: where he's going to be the lead back there at least to start the season, but um the the Ravens have this history of not sticking with one back for all that long. Um so if Ingram isn't as effective as they want him to be, uh and he's, you know, going to be 30 years old, um it's I don't know, I could see one of the other backs getting a shot. And then at that point you have this 30-year-old running back who's only playing some of the snaps. I, I don't know. Like I I have him in a dynasty league uh and it's this weird situation where uh you're just you have this asset that you know is going to expire at some point but you can't trade him for what he's worth. You just have to hope that uh he ends up, you know, continuing to provide value for future seasons. But uh I don't know. I don't I I actually kind of don't think it's a great situation for him.
3: Yeah. Well, I guess for me, the the piece that I would be most concerned about is I don't think that Lamar Jackson is really that good or is going to have that much success. So I think it's going to limit the quality of the opportunity that Ingram can get. Um, but that's fair. And and to go on, on top of that, yep. uh, a lot of Ingram's,
1: um, production from the past, uh, four or five years has been based on touchdowns. Um, for sure. he's averaged like around nine touchdowns per season, um, that's pretty good. like I doubt that he's going to approach that number this year with with the Ravens. maybe he he will, but I really doubt it. There will just be fewer
3: touchdowns to go around right. and, and you know, it's interesting. I think part of the reason that I might be getting more excited about this is, I've realized that some of what I'm doing with my drafting of running backs the last couple of years, I've been looking too far out and I need to try to get some production on it at the start of the season. So that's why, to me, a player like this is interesting. Um, We'll see what happens with Nick Chubb's ADP, but I'd love to see it take a little bit of a hit because I will take the first half of the season of just pure Nick Chubb. And even if that value gets depleted by the end of the season, you know, I want it out of the gate, but these are definitely things to talk about later. Uh, So let's quickly give um, everyone a note from our sponsor here for the show. And then we will get into some of the combine stuff. Hi Rotovis fans, allow me a brief second to tell you about our good friends at the FFPC, the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football. While it may be the off-season for most people, it's definitely not for our listeners or the players at the FFPC. If you're a diehard who's ready to draft now, the FFPC Best Ball Leagues are already open for the 2019 season with drafts forming daily starting at just $35. Or if you're a fan of the Dynasty format, over the last few years, the FFPC has become the go-to destination for serious Dynasty players. They now have almost 300 active Dynasty leagues starting at $77 and they even have a $5,000 entry Dynasty league. And the best part is not a single Dynasty league has folded in nine years. Limited orphan teams are available for purchase right now and brand new startup Dynasty leagues will be opening shortly. Don't miss the FFPC experience, protovis listeners go to myffpc.com and register now that's myffpc.com the home of season long high stakes fantasy football this episode is brought to you by decoy wines
2: of sonoma california as you gather with family and friends this summer experience the best of wine country with decoy by duckhorn Love a good
0: deal? Sale into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from 19.99, polos from 16.99.
3: Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Okay, this week we are going to be releasing a new app on the site. It's called the Combine Explorer. I spent the last maybe week and a half, 2 weeks pulling this together. Uh, But basically, I wanted something that would help us summarize athletic profiles, generate comparable players, and help us to quantify our players' athleticism. So the data that I used for this tool um, was all combine results going back to 2000. So the population, um, and I'll make clear in a minute why this this might matter to those of you listening, Uh, our population includes only players that participated at the combine. And then what I did... um, and you'll be able to go to the site and see what you know you can do with this tool, but um, it's really just helping you to summarize how a player did, compare him to different percentiles for each drill, um, generate a list of comps, which Matt and I might take a look at a couple uh, as we close out the show here. But for each player that participated in the combine, I then determined if they played a full NFL season, and then from there, if they ever averaged ten or more PPR points uh, per game in a season. So. In every instance, the results are normally distributed, um, as you would expect, uh, with measurables like this. So there's less data at the extremes, meaning that there's going to be fewer players in samples, for example, that run a 4-3 than there are going to be players around a four five five, a 4-6, because the majority of players are going to fall in that range. So you have to keep that in mind when you're looking uh, at this data. And I'm reading off some of these numbers at you. Uh, but let's run through some of these. So... Matt um I think it's pretty obvious that um you know for the most part height is not as important of a variable in a running back success uh, as weight would be for example uh, but what you can see is once you start to get down to kind of that below five nine type of range and you can see the numbers. Um, as I sent them over to you here, I think that's kind of where you start to see the drop off and you'd have to worry. But overall, I don't think that height is a super huge uh, consideration.
1: Yeah. um, I've never really been all that focused on height. Although I think that uh, Kevin Cole at Rotoviz a few years ago uh, did a a series of articles uh, with decision trees. And I think he did find um, that height and 40 time um, were, were predictive, um, but I think it was basically to the extent that height is correlated with weight,
3: right? For yeah, I- exactly. And, and kind of what we're doing here when we do an analysis like this is just trying to find cutoff points. So, um, so like what Matt and I are looking at right now is we kind of have players clustered into bins. So, for example, weight we have a group for players above two sixty, above two fifty, above two forty. Then we're looking at the total number of players that participated in the combine that fell into that, and then those that actually found. Um, NFL success being a season, uh, you know, we have to take an arbitrary cutoff for this of of 10 plus points per game averaged in a season. So, what you find with weight is that for the most part, you just want to be like it's good to be above 210, around, you know, even over 200. I think this is a pretty obvious consideration. So, 18% of the players, uh, or excuse me, we've had 68 players go to the combine at the running back position that were in the 190 to 200 range, 18% of them achieved that uh, 10 points per game cutoff. Once you get up to the 220 range, you start to see things get into the 30 percentile range, which given the numbers here does give a little bit of a cutoff. So a smaller player like Devin Singletary, the odds are already stacked against. And as we look at some of these other numbers, you'll see why it's a problem. Bench, we can probably gloss over. I don't think that you can really make any conclusion that bench is a factor. Have you seen anything uh contrary to that before?
1: No, there's, I mean, there, I don't think there's really anything there.
3: Yeah, me either. However, though, now broad, the broad jump in the vertical jump. I do think there is some information you can glean, but a lot of this, I think is common sense. So for example, if you're looking at the broad jump, we do start to see a little bit of a difference when you have players that are in the 125 range, it looks like at least out of players that participated in the combine, if you get to that 125 range, you have a slightly better chance for success than those players that are average. Uh, and once you get down to that 110, 105 range, things start to get a little bit more murky. Um, in conjunction with that, I think you know we're normally going to look at the vertical with it. And the results of the vertical are like really mixed. I would say that a 37 vertical i guess if i had to pick a cutoff point where if you're trying to like maximize the odds of a player being successful are probably around 37 um broad invert these jumping measurables do you hold much weight on them when you're looking at running backs
1: uh it's that's interesting you know i i've almost never looked at them let me rephrase all that yep. uh i did a study years ago uh, where I, I looked at combine data uh, to try to figure out what matters for which positions. Uh, and then whenever I found something that um, I thought, I should say, this was rather unscientific. Yep. Um, but whenever I found uh, factors that I thought mattered the most, um, those would be the ones that I would look at. And so even if there was something else that mattered a little bit, I really... I would kind of stop looking at it because I, I would just look at the things that mattered more. So uh, as you, you can see here in in the outline uh, that you sent broad invert, uh, they do matter. Like there is correlation in that uh, the more explosive a guy is the likelier uh, his odds are of success. Now the question that uh, I would have, uh, I guess I would have a couple of questions. One, uh, is there any correlation with this uh, with draft position? So if guys who are more explosive are just drafted higher, um, I think we would see, uh, you know, kind of like collinearity where um, what we're picking up isn't necessarily so much uh, a measure of a guy's explosiveness, but just a measure of the opportunities he gets because of draft position. So like that would be one question. And then another question would be, um, is this explosiveness picked up in uh, other drills like the 40 yard dash? you know, to where like, if a guy has a good 40 time, um, it's likely that he has uh, a good broad jump and a, a good vertical jump. Um, so I found that 40 time, uh, at least for running backs was more predictive, uh, than broad invert. And so I focused more on, on 40 time. Um, but I mean, still even saying that, um, I don't know how much, the 40 time really even matters uh, in comparison to the big thing, which is just draft position and opportunity.
3: Right. Yeah. So I think that um, one of the things I found, the more that I look at this is there is the inclination to assume that drills carry from one drill to the next. And I think in, if you had to pick a Yes or no answer. If you looked at this as being binary, yes, it's it's more likely that if a player you know has a good 40 time, he's going to have a good broad or a good vert. Uh, but it doesn't always translate the way that right. you would think. And I, I think that what you do see is generally if players are getting like two or three drills where they're going in the 80th percentile, they definitely get their draft stock going up. Or if they have three drills above 70 yeah. percent, then you're seeing that factor in, which is why, you know, a good combine performance does matter, uh, so the broad and the vert. You know, I think that if you see two strong things or two strong scores, it's definitely going to raise the draft position, um, against players that don't have it. But I wouldn't say from looking at these numbers, um, that there are any major cutoffs, um, other than being, you know, if you look at the type of players that get up into like a vertical of like a 40 or a broad of that 125 130 range, they're looking pretty good. But the one that I'd imagine most people are interested with is the 40-yard dash, and I think what I am able to see when I look at these numbers, and granted, as I said earlier, when you're looking at extremes, it's hard to draw conclusions, but one thing you can definitely say is you want to do faster. You you have a much better likelihood of success when you have players that are in that 4-4-5 four, four, range versus that 4-6. Now, what I really like to look at though when doing analysis like this is if you look at the 28 players that finished with a 4.75 to a 4.7, only 7% of them ever had a 10 plus point per game season. And when you move into that 4.65 to 4.7 range, you see just 18%. You contrast that with players in the 4.4 4 to 4.35 range, and you see a jump to 40%, which with the numbers we're looking at, I would say is significant. So, if yeah. I'm a dynasty drafter, I'm trying to pay attention if I see anybody getting to that four, four, five range, and I'm going to be real leery about taking shots on guys that are below four, six, or like a four, six, five. I know there's exceptions like Kareem Hunt, Dalvin Cook comes to mind. I forget his exact speed, but if you're maximize, if you're trying to maximize your opportunity, you do have to keep those in mind.
1: Yeah, um, I think it's it's a situation where uh, four point five is, for me, it's not a hard cutoff because if a guy is really big, yeah, um, I'm I'm willing for him to be much slower, um, but uh, yeah, all, all things being equal, I definitely want the guys who have more athleticism.
3: Right, and now I I, I think that the shuttle um, and the cone are kind of interesting. It, particularly the shuttle, if you look at these numbers that are coming in, uh, it doesn't look like there's a tremendous drop-off. Obviously, you see a little bit better results when you're in that 4, 4.1 type of range, but there's not a tremendous difference between what you're seeing at the 4, 5, 4, 6 range. So I was actually surprised to see that shuttle does not seem to be a major component in this um, as I was kind of hoping that both pieces of agility would play a role. However, though, I do think you can say a player that runs the cone in like a six, eight or better does have a significant advantage over a player that's going beneath like a seven.
1: Yeah, uh, that's fair. And uh, but I, I agree that um, the, the shuttles aren't like the drills where I've put a lot of focus um, because it's it's hard to know uh, how predictive it is. Like, or let me rephrase that. It's yep. not very predictive. Um, and then even if it is uh, a little bit predictive, there are so many other factors that are more predictive that it's, for me, it's almost like not even worth paying attention to.
3: Right. Which brings us to really the two pieces of this puzzle that I think are the most interesting and that people... can have the biggest takeaway from and that is when you look at speed score which is the adjusted size speed metric so for a running back it's looking at their weight in their 40 you do see a significant and in like a way i wish we had a visual medium here but the slope from players that have that 125 speed score down to players that have that 85 is in a pretty straight line downwards so you have 63 percent for players that get to that 115 and above mark. So again, what that's saying is of the around 30 players going back to 2000 that have produced a speed score of 115 or over at the combine, 63% of them have gone on to have at least one season with 10 plus PPR points, which that actually, so you're nearly at two thirds there. That's actually a really, really strong number in an analysis like this.
1: Yeah, that's a huge number. Like that is um that's I I don't want to say like that's the skeleton key, but like that is something that people don't pay that much attention to. And it is basically a function uh purely of weight and 40 time. Uh and so that's those are the two things I, I pay the most attention to outside of other factors like draft position and uh projectable opportunity based on the team a guy is with. Um, those are, those are the factors that, and, and then of course I should say college production, right. but that is also something that feeds into draft position and the projection you can maybe have for a guy in the NFL. But in terms of physical factors, um, a guy's weight and a guy's 40 time. Uh, and those are the two factors that go into speed score.
3: Yeah, exactly. So basically bringing up those other pieces. And again, you know, a podcast isn't the best medium to get these across was just building up to that. Every time I go back and I look at running back measurables, I end up going back to the speed score, and there's a reason. Uh, And the other reason that I really like it, too, is to me, there's a very clear cutoff once a player's in that 85, even 90 range. I'm just avoiding it unless there's a real compelling reason, because we still have a pretty decent sample of players, Uh, so, you know, nine, uh, let's see, 80 players In the 90 to 95 range, 66 players in the 85 to 90 range, 28 players in that 80 to 95 range. And at best, you're probably going to get one in four odds of the player hitting. Whereas once you get above that 100 mark, you're moving up into closer to like a 35% type of range. Now, those might not seem like big differences, but the reality is the overwhelming majority of players are not going to be successful. So when you start moving, you know, 5%, 10%, that's a huge jump. So the speed score really, when you're looking at these running backs in this class, I think that you need to make sure that you're paying attention to speed score. If you see a guy that's getting up to that 115 range, definitely get interested in him. And no matter what you think of a player, if they're falling into that 90, 85 range, you definitely need to think twice. And then to close out, if you look at agility, combining the shuttle and the three cone, and I should say that a thing to keep in mind here is the agility score does give more weight to the uh, shut, or to the three cone, which I think is a little bit more predictive. And, and the reason for that is simply that we're adding the two together, The scores for the shuttle are going to be, or the time it takes to do the shuttle is higher than the time it takes to do the three cone. Um, So it's weighing in a little bit more. You can say if a player gets below 11, they for sure have a much better likelihood of success than players that get down to that like 11.4 range. So I don't think any of this was really that revolutionary, Matt. I just think it's, it's kind of a reminder for people that there are certain thresholds that you need to pay attention to.
1: No, I think it, I mean, I guess I wouldn't say it's revolutionary, but uh, I think it's it's worth going through and uh, uh, a couple of thoughts here. One, you mentioned Dalvin Cook earlier, and I think he's someone who actually, um, like this analysis uh, is good uh, to think of someone like him. Um, He had horrible athleticism at the combine, except for his 40 time. Like his 40 was actually 4.49 seconds at 210 pounds. Like that's good enough. Um, the rest of his athleticism was horrible, like horrible in his jumps, horrible in his agility drills. Um, but those things kind of don't matter. And, and so I think it's actually interesting to, um, I, I mean like I haven't, so the sample is so small that it's hard to do this in any like scalable way. But one thing that I've actually tried to do, um, is to, uh, focus on guys who actually have poor athleticism in their jumps and in their agility drills because I don't think those matter all that much. Um, but those things, like they do, factor into spark score, uh, and so like that has kind of become like the de facto athletic uh, metric, uh, the catch-all metric that people look at to judge athleticism. Uh, and so a guy like Dalvin cook will have a poor spark score. Um, and, uh, I think as a result that would lead to him having a lower draft position, uh, entering the NFL than he should. Um, but I think all of those other things that go into spark score kind of don't matter. So he would be someone who provides value. Um, and then also this is kind of secondary, but there are those guys who will say like uh, a guy who has like a 90 speed score. Uh, historically, he's had uh, maybe only like a 25% chance of having a season with 10 plus uh, points per game. Um, but the thing is, sometimes those guys uh, are still so um, so available late in the draft that they actually do end up providing excess value. So even though that would be someone like in a vacuum that you don't want to draft, that person still might provide value just because no one wants him. Uh, and so that is like w- when there are guys who have athleticism, that isn't all that good. Um, but I still think they're interesting because they were uh, total producers in college or like whatever reason it is. Just, you know, like a guy catches my eye. Maybe he has good opportunity or, you know, potential opportunity on his NFL team. Um, I think there's still value in in some of those guys who don't have quite the athletic measurables, but I think this is an opportunity to uh to kind of be contrarian, yep. uh and going uh going with guys who have the athletic measurements that matter, uh but don't have the athletic measurements that other people value.
3: Right now, let's let's talk about a player like Devin Singletary. So Devin Singletary, tremendous. Production at Florida Atlantic. I think over 60 touchdowns in his career, like 4,400 yards, something ridiculous like that. However, though, a speed score of just 86. He's 5'7203 and ran the 40 in a 4'66 time. His agility was really bad. The 50th percentile for the players that I have in my database is 11.3. His agility was an 11.72. Uh, his best attributes actually were the vertical and the broad, which we established don't really matter. So what do you do with a player like this? Now, his comps, I will say, it's interesting. Um, There's really only three of them that ever did anything in the NFL, and those are Devonta Freeman, Dominic Davis, and Maurice Jones-Drew. So that's like a really mixed bag. Out of the 20 players I'm looking at, you see a lot of players that never even made it to the next level, but the three that did hit... All did very well in their seasons that they had in the NFL, even Dominic Davis, three out of three, uh, for getting to that ten point per game threshold. What do you do with a player like this, Matt?
1: Uh man. Um, I I don't know. It's hard. I stay away from him. Me too. Probably. Yep. Um, and I kind of hate to say, it. I mean, the thing, the big difference, I would say he is in no way comparable to, uh, Maurice Jones drew who ran like a four point three eight forty uh, coming out of college. So, uh, I think actually pretty different, even though, uh, in terms of their size, they're similar. Um, I can actually see the Devonte Freeman comp. Yep. Uh, although Freeman was still, uh, more athletic, but uh you know, Singletary wasn't a guy who caught a lot of passes later in college. I think he probably still has the capability to do it. He just wasn't called upon to do it in uh the offense. But uh yeah, I don't know. I I'm not that interested in short guys who aren't really all that big and um aren't really all that fast. Like there's okay, so CJ Anderson is five eight and two hundred and twenty pounds. Yep. So like, it's possible for a guy who's five seven to be more than two hundred three. If he were five seven and two ten, I would probably be more interested. But he's he's small, he's short, he's not that fast. Um, <laughs> I, I, he's probably not going to be drafted with the top hundred pick. Like, I, I can I can live if uh, I pass on him and he ends up being a superstar.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. No, to me, Singletary is a perfect example of when you go in and you're looking at this whole profile and you take everything into account, why you kind of have to. I think if you're a dynasty owner that's trying to maximize your chances of hitting, pass on guys like that, because there's so many red flags there that the odds that he's actually going to make something and become this huge or, you know, even give you any type of return on where you're taking him is so low and I know that it's easy to be like, well, you know, maybe he's going to fall down and with the pick I'm taking him at, you know, it doesn't really matter. But I think what we lose sight of is we feel like we're really good, especially in dynasty knowing which players are going to hit. But there's been a couple of times where I grab somebody that I'm not really that high on. I don't like that much. And then they end up hitting. So it's like, you want to maximize those opportunities. Now you mentioned CJ Anderson at the combine. Uh, weighed in at 224 pounds. He was 5'8. He ran the 40 in 4'6. So only six tenths or, yeah, six tenths of a second better than Singletary, but his speed score was 100, which put him in an entirely different group. And then yeah. also his agility was better than 50th percentile. Now we said that agility isn't that important, but again, that agility for a player that's 224 isn't that bad so there's just more that we can go at there that's looking like it's working in his in his favor now he had some interesting comps too his comps were much more successful alfred morris we also see devonta freeman zach stacy mike bell rudy johnson liddell betts and mark ingram so you know when you have 37 percent of or like yeah 37 percent of his comps going for 10 plus ppr seasons you know there's a lot more there that you can look to as being positive
1: yeah that's fair, and and the one thing bringing it back to uh, Devin Singletary that I would say, um, I think draft position is going to be something that matters most. Like draft position is king. Right. Like Maurice Jones-Drew was a third rounder. Dominic Davis, I believe, was a second or third rounder. Uh, Devontae Freeman was was a fourth rounder. But like, I don't, I don't think Singletary will be drafted ahead of any of those guys.
3: Right. Um. So you know, it, it's definitely an interesting exercise when you're going through this. Now, of course looking at the measurables is only one half of the puzzle. Um, you definitely need to look at it in, you know, in conjunction with the collegiate production, but, um, one bad, can we, oh yeah, go sorry, for it, can,
1: can we do one more thing? Yeah. Like, compare Devin Singletary to, uh, Travion Williams, um, who is one of his comparable players, uh, looking in this, uh, who's also a rookie, right? So yep. similar class, uh, five, 206 pounds so very similar in size but uh williams ran a 4.51 you know so just like a totally different right. class uh of athlete um like i would much rather take a shot on williams uh than someone like singletary now williams uh i would expect him to be drafted you know like round 3 something like that uh where singletary will be drafted you know i don't know round 4 round 5 um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, just because there are guys who, uh, are comparable in some ways. And, and so like Singletary was, uh, outstandingly productive in college. So is Williams. Like the only thing really separating these guys is the 40 time. Uh, and then, I mean, like I always would say athleticism. Um, but for me, it really boils down to 40 time, but like that is, I hate to say that's a a huge number for me, but, uh, I don't know. It it correlates to so many other things that like 40 time actually is pretty big.
3: Well, this is the thing too. I think we've heard a lot lately. Well, I don't know. I think if you spend as much time reading about measurables and, and, you know, combined performances and whatnot, as we do, you're going to, you're going to hear from that crowd that, that wants to say, Oh, 40 doesn't even matter. You know, to try to, I guess, almost go to contrarian or, or, you know, maybe at one point in time, we would have wanted to think that. But the thing is, 40 times might not matter if you're just looking at the raw score. But it's really when you add in that size element, that weight element, that it, it, it's really hard to deny that it does matter.
1: Yeah, it, it totally matters. Like there's no way um, around it. Yeah, it I mean, it matters in that we can clearly see that guys who uh who have good 40 times and as you mentioned when you place it in the context of a guy's total like physical profile yep. um if if you tell me what a guy's when well, you say what position he plays but what a guy's size is what his 40 time is and what his age is like we can we can pinpoint even without necessarily uh knowing how productive he was in college like we could come really close to saying when he's going to be drafted mm-hmm. so like Like 40 time, it matters.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh shoot. And that gave me like a really good connecting thought there. Um, oh, what I wanted to say, but the really cool thing too, about this combine explorer that we have now is you can go in and you can change what positions are included in the comps and you can make like some, you can find some really cool things. So like Pat white, um, some of you may remember was a quarterback at West Virginia, was pretty good, was pretty athletic, couldn't really cut it as a quarterback. And I can remember people saying, you know, maybe this guy should switch to wide receiver. Well, when you pull up his comps and you do every position, you see a bunch of wide receivers popping in, which is really cool. And it brings up some interesting things like DK Metcalf. Most of his athletic comps are running backs, not wide receivers. So there's some interesting things to see. The one player I do want to mention, Matt, I don't think we talked about him that much before, but I am beginning to really like Miles Sanders.
1: Yeah, um, he is. He is interesting. Um, you know, I, I think he was one of the top recruits in his class, maybe like the top. Yeah, he was. He was because yeah. even
3: in even in uh, high school, he had ridiculous measurables.
1: Yeah. Um, so he didn't see production early in his career because he was playing behind, you know, like the <laughs> the greatest. uh uh, you know, I would say like prospect yep. uh, at the running back position for at least the, the past decade. Uh, So he just didn't get that much playing time. I I wish he would have been. I mean, he was still productive last year. I just wish he would have been a little more productive. But yeah, he's well. What, what's your knock, knock on him someone... mean, production
3: wise? He, he averaged a little bit more yards per carry than Saquon. I guess he had about half. Okay, yeah, half the receptions. Not too much yardage in the touchdowns were at like nine versus sixteen.
1: Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what it is. And yeah. but, but like, so basically I'm just holding against him the fact that he's not Saquon Barkley, but he's, um, I don't know. He, he probably deserves to be drafted in the top hundred and he's someone I, I need to move up aggressively whenever I redo my rookie rankings.
3: Yeah. So, you know, I, I still am really liking Sanders. I'm still liking Daryl Henderson. I need to do more thinking about Justice Hill Hill and Alex Barnes. Um, But you know, this happens to me every year, though. The more I look at running backs, the more I just start to get intrigued by everybody.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I have a core group of guys that I'm, I'm kind of excited about. Justice Hill, I think he will be drafted no later than round four. He's like the one guy in this class who has a legit speed. Like he's the one... Uh, I think premium change of pace back in this class. And that is increasingly valued in the NFL. So I think he will be, uh, he will be drafted in the top half. Uh, and he was productive in college too. Like he deserves to be drafted uh, pretty highly. And then uh, the other, Oh, Alex Barnes. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm too into him. Um, he's not going to be drafted as high as I think he should be. Like he is actually the type of player that I think um, is a, a decent test case. Um, Because he's not going to be drafted with the top 100 pick, um, but he was productive in his final season. He is an athletic freak. Um, It's like the ability to see how much does draft position really matter. Because if it doesn't matter all that much, uh, as long as Alex Barnes is as good as we think he might be, and he doesn't suffer any type of injury, and he's, I mean, a lot of conditionals here, uh, yep. and he's like on a, a team with a, a coach who's you know willing to keep an open mind and, and reward the players who maybe practice the best or whatever it is, as long as those, those conditions are met, um, he could start, like he could end up being a guy who has a legitimate NFL career.
3: Yeah, for sure. Six feet, 226, ran the 40 in 459. That's a 102 speed score. He has that agility that's getting to kind of that elite level to the area where it does matter. So if you go back to some of the things that we talked about, he is in those areas where other predictors than just 40 start to matter. And then also uh, he does have a pretty decent list of comps because in his first five, you get Jay Ajayi, Nick Chubb, and Mikel Shore. Um, you know, not that the short was the greatest running back ever, but again, these type of things matter when there's so few players that hit. There's also Rashad Jennings, TJ Yeldon, Deshaun Foster, Sean Green. And, you know, obviously there's, there's flaws in just looking at comparables like that. But I think that Nick Chubb one is really notable because we saw that Chubb was such a freak last year was so athletic. Barnes is a similar specimen. So I can't stress enough just how, you know, incredibly gifted this guy is and you get him in the right situation, like you said, and he could certainly pop. Yeah, totally. So we've, uh, I think gone over an hour now, but it's hard because these running backs are just getting me so excited, Matt. Um, any closing thoughts for you as I try to find the outro? Uh,
1: no, not much. Uh, look forward to the release of this tool on, uh, on RotoViz, and, uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I've got.
3: All right. Thank you. Uh, That's going to do it for today's show. Again, please rate, review, subscribe, even unsubscribe, and subscribe again to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at DaveKabenFF and at MattFTheOracle. Be sure to check out RotoViz, and if there's any topics you want us to discuss or questions you'd like for us to answer, send an email to RotoVizRadio at gmail.com. And remember, it's not a fantasy if you believe it.
2: Who am I and how am I feeling? I'm Clive Owen and I'm great, thanks. What if businesses could really understand how their customers feel, act on it, and make them feel better? It's a thing. It's SAP Experience Management. For more, go to sap.com slash xm. Let's consider the secret life of the innermost nesting doll. Living most of her life in the dark inside the other nesting dolls, she has plenty of time to think, if she could. Sadly, she has no brain, however, When an innermost nesting doll hears that Geico not only saves people money but also has been providing great service for over 75 years, she thinks it's obvious you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Pity the innermost nesting doll and her lot in life.
0: Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering
4: Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing.